And I want to begin reading with verse number five. I'll read three verses, but we will work to try to get to verse 13. Hebrews 13, verse five. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do to me. Remember them which have the rule over you and who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful again to be able to break the bread of life this day. It's our desire to hear the word of the Lord clearly. Help me to speak with clarity. Give us ears to hear. Let each heart be good ground. We pray, Father God, this word would bear fruit in all of our lives as we teach on the believer's lifestyle. These things we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a certain way the Christians should live, and the Bible gives us a lot of insight in how we should live and how we should not live. When we Begin with verse number five. It begins by speaking to us about conversation. Now we immediately think of our speech, but the archaic use of conversation that was utilized when the King James Version was written also meant lifestyle, manner of living, a way of life. If we say that someone is conversant with something, we say a person is acquainted with someone and it's because of study or because of experience that they are acquainted with it it has to do with some kind of interaction the word conversation also at a particular time in history a few centuries ago even in the legal discourse when people described adultery they used the phrase called criminal conversation when they described adultery because it has to do with interaction That's a physical kind of interaction. The Greek word here that is the basis for their usage of the word conversation, it describes a way of life. And we run into it again at the end of verse number seven. But it says our conversation or our lifestyle should be without covetousness. And that's the love of money. That's what the Greek word means, the love of money. Scripture says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, if you had been raised in a socialist society, if you ran into the sentence, be content with such things as you have, that may not bother you at all. But having been raised as we've been raised, from a kid, you've been taught to do the best you can to get ahead in life. You find that contentment is not something that a lot of people have in the West. People want more. They want more property. They want more money. They want more this, they want more of that. that. That is not to say that socialism is good and capitalism is bad. That is only simply to make a distinction so that you can understand the difference in how people would read this. If someone, if someone grew up in a family where uh, they were millionaires and they owned 15 houses and houses on each continent and they went back and forth, if they read you should be content with such things as you have, they probably could understand it and be quite happy and satisfied with what they have. But if you were raised as a child in a shack, in a metal home across the border in Mexico, or 
in a one-room rural house with eight or nine siblings, then you know as well as I do that contentment was not necessarily something you had as you entered into your teen years. The scripture here dealing with covetousness is important because this is one of the commandments. We should not covet. If you see something that's in the possession of someone else and then you begin to long for it. If you're not careful, pretty soon you'll take steps to get it. That'll become thievery. Let's not forget the story of, I think it was Joshua and all of them, they were on their way to battle, and the Lord told them when they get into this particular area, don't put their hands on anything. Don't touch anything. You just will destroy everything that's there. One man got there, and he looked and saw a wedge of gold and a beautiful Babylonian garment. And he thought to himself, there's no sense in leaving this gold here. Nobody else is going to get it if we leave it. And this beautiful Babylonian garment, it's best to have it. So he grabbed it, tucked it up under his, 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 his outfit or his uniform, and he marched all the way back with the children of Israel. And when they got home, the Lord said, I have something against you because someone has touched the accursed thing. And then, of course, they ended up in trouble because of the man's sin. But it started with covetousness. Scripture says of Eve, she was in the garden and she looked and saw the fruit that God said she should not have. But when she saw that it was pleasing to the eyes, rightly to be desired to make someone wise, she coveted it. Covetousness is something we should all be wary of because it'll lead us down very treacherous roads. Yeah. You, you let a man begin to covet somebody else's wife. Or a wife began to covet somebody else's husband. I've seen some very terrible things take place when that, when that occurs. And you can see on television over and over again, one documentary after another, where because of jealousy and envy and covetousness, people are killed. People lose their lives. So the scripture says, let your lifestyle be without covetousness, but be content with such things as you have. That, that, so we have to work on that. What, what does that mean? At, at what point in my life am I supposed to be content? Paul said, in whatever state I find myself, I'm content. Whether I'm hungry, I'm content. Whether I'm full, I'm content. Whether I've been humiliated and abased, I'm content. Or whether I'm exhaust, exalted, I'm content. But there aren't too many people who long for food and clothing and shelter and hunger, and hunger, uh, the, these folks aren't usually content. But I'll tell you what this means. It means that no matter what state of existence you are presently experiencing, the one thing you need to be content with is knowing that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Whether you're in prison, naked, clothed, hungry, if you have the Lord, you have someone with you that is going to bless you and protect you And he's the one that helps you with your character so that when you pass through these different circumstances of life, you don't lose your mind. There's a reason some people don't handle fullness and lack in a very good way. Some people, when it comes to lack, they go out and rob people and kill people. They steal. Scripture says don't despise the man that steals to satisfy his soul or his hunger. He's got to restore. It says don't despise him. But at the same time, the person that that, that is so wealthy that they lose sight of the fact that it was God that blessed them, that's a dangerous thing too. Even Jesus gives the parable. He says that there was a man that had so much possession, his grain bins were so full, 
He said, oh, my, you know what? I've got so much stuff in my grain bins. Why don't I tear these down and build some grain bins that are even bigger than the ones that I have? And he did it. And then he laid down. And then the Lord came to him and said, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And whose possessions will those things be that you've built up? And Jesus made that other statement and said, Man's life should not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. Please don't allow your, your, uh, your dignity, your esteem to be tied to what you have. Don't allow the kind of car you drive to give value to who you are. Don't allow the kind, the kind of home that you have to give value to who you are. You should have the kind of character that, that, that represents the Lord in such a way that whether you're living under a tree or whether you're in a penthouse, if you have God with you, that's where the blessing is. Be content with such things as you have, what you have in the present. And the good thing about the Lord is that if you, if you have him and when you walk with him, these things tend to change anyhow. Most of us in here know that when two people start off in adulthood in marriage, when people become adults and start off in life, they typically don't have all that they will have. You start off with zero. Then pretty soon you build a life and God helps you. And God brings a lot of different things your way on the basis of the decisions that you make. But you don't want to be fearful about lacking things because God is big enough to take care of you. So verse 6 says, we should boldly be able to say the Lord is my helper. He's the one looking after you. He's the one going to ensure, and he's the one who has ensured that you have the things that you need. So there may have been times in your life where you thought God wasn't looking out for your best interest, but maybe you don't really know what your best interests were or are. And so God had to go in a a variety of different directions to bring you into a place where he actually could help you. It could very well be that he couldn't help you until you were humbled. That's a possibility. It could very well be that he couldn't help you until you met certain people, until you got into a certain place. And if you look at your life and you just start all the way back from, from, the, from the earliest remembrances you have and think of the people that molded and shaped your personality and your conscience, and then you think about moving into adulthood, you, you'll find out that whether it was family, foe, or friend, that God had a lot of different ways to help you, even if you didn't understand it. So we say it boldly, the Lord is my helper. Somebody says they're going to be against you and you're not going to succeed, then you can stand on what the scripture says. I will not fear what man shall do to me. At this time, I don't doubt that the early church was worshiping God under pain of death, persecution, threats, Possibly some of them may have lost property, real estate. Things have been taken from them, confiscated by the Romans or other people. But yet, but yet Paul, when he writes this, he says to them that, that even if you've experienced lack and people have taken things from you or withheld things from you, let your lifestyle be without covetousness. Be content with what you have. Think about that. That, that, that means a whole lot. If, if circumstances in America turned in the opposite direction for us that are Christians and they started appropriating Bibles, 
confiscating church properties, started putting Christians in jail who didn't believe the state religious beliefs or something like that, and didn't propagate them. And then we find ourselves suddenly facing one calamity after another. Some of us could very well end up in jail, but then we'd have to remember verse 3. Remember those that are in bonds as though you're bound with them, them that suffer adversity. Well, these things are true because Christians all over the world have to be people that stay away from covetousness. The love of money is the root of all evil. That's amazing. But so much in our society promotes that. And this is where the character of the Christian comes in. God is not opposed to wealth. How do I know that? Abraham was rich in cattle and silver and gold. So was his son and his grandsons because it went from one generation to another generation. The scripture says a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. So God's not opposed to you saving and leaving something to other people. Solomon was made wealthy by the Lord, and the Lord came to him and asked him in a dream. And because he answered rightly, God made him wealthy. So I don't want you to think that that wealth is an issue. Money has never been a problem for God. Money has always been a problem for us. Because if we're not faithful over what is little, then chances are we won't be faithful over, over that which is much. And you see some people, their palms get sweaty when they start thinking about the things that they want, but they never stop to consider that what they have, they're not content with it, nor have they even been good stewards with it. So here's somebody who says, Lord, if, if, if you bless me with a million dollars, I'm telling you I'd be the most faithful Christian, I'd be a big philanthropist, and I'd give away thousands of dollars and people They'd ask me to be on the bank board and I'd be on the hospital board and I mean, I'd be a part of everything. But then God comes back to. Are you even a giver with what little bits you have now? That's the key. You don't have to lay awake at night and dream about things that you want. You can lay awake at night and meditate on the fact that you have him. Mr. Bunyan was in jail. They sent a priest to his prison every day to basically demand that he would recant his position, his Protestant position, and he refused to do it. They said, if you would just acknowledge the the church of this nation as the main church on planet Earth, we'll let you out of this prison. Mr. Bunyan said, why should I want out of this prison? Anywhere God is, is a kingdom now for me. and He's in jail with me. That's a man that knows that the Lord is his helper. Verse 7 then says, let's not forget those that have the rule over you who speak the word of God. So now we're speaking of ministers, teachers in a variety of different uh, roles in a church who share a life-inspiring word of God. And when it says have the rule over you, don't allow that phrase to scare you. That's just simply saying the ones that are exercising authority in that local church. The one who speaks God's word to you. There are a lot of occupations in this world that can change lives. A doctor can change a patient's life. There's no doubt about it. A fireman can change a person's life when they rescue them. You take somebody who's a gardener. 
They can change a person's life just by providing them with food. This is the one thing here that is of spiritual significance, but it still affects every aspect of a person's life. Throughout Scripture, whenever God wanted to affect change in a nation, in a family, in a, a region, he looked for somebody to speak his word. Somebody speak his word. If he wanted to change the children of Israel, the way they were living in Jerusalem, he sent Jeremiah to the temple gate and said, preach to the people that they should repent. God wanted to try to change the, the, the generation of Noah and all of their wickedness. He spoke to Noah, the preacher of righteousness. They proclaimed the word, but yet nobody listened to what this man had to say. Anybody who stands up and ministers the word of God to you in truth, in purity, uncompromisingly, the scripture says, remember them. Remember them how? Pray for them. Yeah, love them. Be encouraged that there's somebody that loves God enough that they want to give themselves to declaring the word of God. Now, they may be a full-time minister. They may be bivocational. But whatever it is, the individual who has sown God's word into your life. Now, you, you, you think of some of the preachers that you've known in your lifetime from the time you were young. The people who set the example for you through what they taught, what they said. Those are memories that you will always have. But if you don't have those memories, God can give us those kinds of memories. It's the one who speaks the word of God. It's not the one who preaches what is popular in the culture, what is trendy, what is trending, but what God's word says. And as you can see here, it says that person's faith, you should follow it. So if Paul could say to someone, follow me as I follow, follow Christ, a preacher should be able to say that. If you hear a preacher say, look, do as I say, but not as I do, that's bad. Jesus said the Pharisees were like that. The minister of Christ should live a life that reflects a, a behavior or a lifestyle that exemplifies Christ. That means outside the pulpit. He or she ought to be the message that they're proclaiming in the pulpit. And if, and if that preacher isn't as holy sitting on your couch as he is in that pulpit, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. If the only time he gets holy is when he grabs a Bible and opens it up or he stands up and begins to pray or puts a robe on or a suit and a tie on, if, if the only holiness that is attached to that individual is in connection with those circumstances, I'm telling you, you, you it's going to be very difficult to follow that kind of a person. Because the word that they preach will be somewhat different. Now, we hear this on television. We hear this on radio. And if you were to listen and someone said, you know, years ago, people honestly believed that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he died without sin, that he was resurrected, and that he's in heaven now as God, and one day he's going to be a judge. People believe that at one time, but right now we're more of an enlightened generation, and we don't, uh, you know, college-educated people don't traditionally believe that, and, and, and more and more people in, in other locations are abandoning that kind of a, of a belief system for something a, a bit more progressive, which is true to how we live today. I'm telling you, you better run. You better run. Because what, whatever that is, it is not the word of God. 
not the word of God. Peter preached in the book of Acts that Jesus was crucified, he died, he was raised again from the dead. Paul preached the same thing. John preached the same thing. Jude preached the same thing. So there was a time when ministers were revered in the sense that they were honored and esteemed in the community. That's not the case now. There was a time in this, the, the history of this nation when politicians would look over their shoulder to, to see if there was a preacher around or to hear what the preachers were saying from the pulpit. They don't say that now because most preachers, I assume, aren't saying anything enough to convict anybody of anything anyhow. We, we don't say anything worth killing us over. You know? But if we ever did, it would be something to see in this nation. So remember those who speak the word of God. My, my grandmother, who was a, a good, good Baptist lady, she loved to have that pastor over to her house on Sunday afternoon. I'm not giving you any hints at all. I'm just, I'm just mentioning this. But, but she loved to have that preacher over there to that house. And as far as she was concerned, she, just, she honestly believed somehow or another God would add a blessing to her house. Just him coming there. She just believed that, you know. And, and there are still people who who hold to that. The scripture says, he that gives a prophet a cup of water in a prophet's name shall not lose their reward. You see why I'm always at your place drinking coffee and having fun? We, we want to see the blessing of God. Okay, so then you should be able to follow that person's faith and their lifestyle, and I hope and pray that the way my wife and I live before people out here in Nebraska that they'll know if they follow us, they'll get to heaven. We don't want anybody to be able to look at us and say, there's a hypocrite if there's ever been one on planet Earth. We understand that as ministers, we live our lives in a glass fishbowl, and people are constantly watching and you know, paying attention to what, what you do, and those things are important. If you know that, then a preacher should conduct himself in a certain way, which is why when I go out in town, I don't look like, you know, just any and everything. I'm always dressed in such a way when I'm out in public that, that nobody ever has to be ashamed to say, so-and-so ministers to me. These things are important, you know, very, very, very important. Okay, so verse 8 then says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change, so we shouldn't change. He's immutable. He does not change. No mutation at all in him. What he was in the past, he is today. What he is today and doing today, he'll be forever. He was holy in the past. Still holy. He'll be holy tomorrow. Compassionate. Still compassionate. Now, if you take 10 people, think of this. You take 10 people, and you ask 10 people to write down on a piece of paper, give me the number three, uh, the top three characteristics you think are exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ. Top three characteristics, the characteristic traits that you think are exemplified in the life of the Lord as portrayed in the Gospels. I guarantee if you, you took all of those papers and put them before you, you'd get different, different descriptions of him. Some would say he's compassionate. Some would say he's merciful. Some would say uh, jealous God because of what he did in the temple when he 
threw out the people, the money changers. Somebody else might say he's, he's powerful. Somebody else would say he's manly. See, a lot of different versions of him. But the thing is, when, when you're trying to describe Christ, you, you've got to remember it's, it's like a big, huge mountain. You know, let's just say Mount Everest. And if, if you've got a thousand people that are standing around the foot of that mountain and everybody starts trying to climb up to the summit and they're trying to reach it at the same time, I guarantee you everybody's seeing different things of that mountain. The perspectives are different. That's how big God is when we're talking about how he was revealed in his son. So you, you have a tendency to reflect on the side of the mountain you're climbing up at that particular time in your life. If you're needing forgiveness today, you're focusing on forgiveness. Yeah. If, if, if you're needing deliverance or rescue, you're in trouble. And you're like the one that cries out, says, son of David, save me then I guarantee you're focusing on the, the delivering power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever you are in your circumstance, at that moment, that has everything to do with what you see and what you desire. When Peter stepped out of the boat and the Lord said, come, and Peter was walking on the water to Jesus, he was quite pleased to see Jesus, but the moment the storm got his attention and he paid attention and he started sinking, first thing he cried out was, Lord, save me, because what he was thinking about was God's ability to rescue. And that's what we do. We think about certain traits of God when we're passing through certain situations. If the doctor told me, I've got 90 days to live, I give you my word, I'd be thinking about Jesus the healer. I would. Yeah. If, 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 someone, if someone said to me, or if I, if I, if I, if I suddenly realized that in my relationship with God, I've grown embittered, then I start thinking about the fact he can heal and mend a broken heart. I would. I'd I, I pay attention to that. If, if I was in need of food, and I was at home praying, saying, God, I just wish you'd touch someone's heart to bring me a bag of groceries, I'd be thinking about the fact that Jesus multiplied the loaves of bread and the fishes. Wherever you are tonight in your relationship, whatever the circumstances you're passing through, I can promise you it's that aspect of God that you're thinking about. And this is why so many people, when they get angry with God and they don't want to have anything to do with God and when they're asking questions about God, if you listen to the question, the question has everything to do with their circumstances. If there is a God, how come God doesn't help us in trouble? Because they're thinking about trouble. See? Trouble. They're thinking about trouble. There are a lot of people that are poor. There's a lot of evil in this world. There are a lot of bad things that are taking place. If God cares about people in this world, why is he not helping people in trouble? That's where the mind is at. But the scripture says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even if people change, if preachers change, if Christians change, he doesn't change. He doesn't change at all. The church may change. He doesn't. Since he doesn't change... Verse 9 says, don't be carried about with divers and strange doctrines. That means different kinds of doctrines and odd or weird doctrines. It's a good thing for the heart to be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. There are a lot of different doctrines. <clears throat> I 
I don't think I've ever met a preacher in my life that honestly, I should say this way, I don't think I've ever met a passionate preacher, a sincere preacher in my life who did not believe what they were preaching was true. I have met some that knew they were lying. But most preachers I meet honestly believe that what they're preaching is true, what they're teaching is true. So if I'm talking to a friend of mine who's Lutheran, we'll just go through many, many of these. If, if I say, okay, what's the difference between Missouri and Wisconsin Senate? It may seem to me like it's something trivial, but I guarantee for the, to the people that are in those churches, it's something big to them. If you talk to somebody in the ELCA, say, what makes you different from the, let's say, from one of the charismatic reformed, independent charismatic uh, Lutheran congregations? They'll say, well, this is what we believe. And they think that that difference is big. If you talk to a Presbyterian, well, are you Presbyterian Church of America? Or are you Presbyterian of uh, United States of America, or are you Southern Presbyterian? You talk to all of them, and they all honestly believe that what they're standing for is truth. If you talk to somebody who's Church of God, you say, well, are you Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, or are you Church of God, Indiana? Well, if you're Church of Christ, what are you? Are you Church of Christ uh, with musicians, or Church of Christ you don't believe in instruments? Disciples of Christ? Are you, are, well, I'm Baptist. Well, which Baptist are you? Are you primitive Baptist, free will Baptist, southern Baptist, missionary Baptist, northern Baptist, American Baptist? All of these are different beliefs, and I could do this with a thousand Pentecostal denominations and independent churches across the earth. The, the thing I'm trying to tell you is the one thing that doesn't change is Jesus. He doesn't change at all. The Bible doesn't change. You can go into as many different churches as restaurants you can find in Nebraska. And everybody's going to serve something a different way. And it's going to be a different presentation of what it is. What, what the believer has to figure out is if I look into the scriptures, how can I determine if it's just a different doctrine or if it's actually a weird doctrine, strange doctrine? Because you can hold different beliefs about baptism and make it to heaven. You can hold different beliefs about how you're going to do communion and make it to heaven. But there are some things you cannot compromise. I'll give you six or seven of them. Number one, Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived without sin. Never did wrong. Jesus suffered in our place. Died. Was literally buried. Resurrected. And then ascended to heaven. You cannot compromise on those things there. You compromise on any of those. You're going you're gonna to remove one of the fundamental building blocks of Christianity. And I can promise you any one of them that you move. You're going to lose everything else. Because once you say he's no longer God. Then you've lost the virgin birth. If you lose the virgin birth. You lose the reason for him to die. Because he can't be a lamb slain without sin. If you lose the idea that his atoning death was for your sin and for mine, then what's the point of the resurrection? There was no reason to resurrect him to validate the life that he lived. And when a preacher attacks those basic things, it, it's, it, it's a, it becomes an odd doctrine. Odd doctrine. Now, we, we've all encountered them. I was teasing some folks the other night about different teachings that 
have crept up in the church. You know, when I when I became a Christian, and then as a, a young teenager, started off as a minister, the, the one thing we could not do in the churches that I was a part of, you, you could not have anything to do with a deck of cards. I'm telling you, that joker in that deck, he would defile your hands. And I mean, I mean, there's no telling what a that demon would jump out of that deck of cards and into your heart. And there were people to believe that. And, and then you, you start thinking about, well, you, you can't have a woman wear makeup. I mean, because if she wears makeup, then she's worldly. You know, Jezebel wore makeup in the Old Testament. There were a lot of churches. Didn't let women wear makeup. You can go into some of the southern states right now, and you can go into some of the, the, uh, the holiness churches, Nazarene, Free Methodist, some of the Pentecostal churches down there. To this day, they don't wear any makeup at all. Ladies don't wear pants, not just in church. I mean outside of church. And you can't cut your hair, so you've got to have your, your hair up in a bun, you know. Th- these are doctrines that, don't have anything to do with salvation, I think, but in many of these churches, some of them think they do. I preached a revival one time in North Carolina on the day that I was off and didn't have to preach. I went to another church with some friends of mine. The pastor of the church I was holding a revival in was a lady. And so her daughter was a fellow minister of mine, and we used to preach a lot in a denomination in North Carolina called the United Church of God. And we got to this church, and, and my friend, she had some makeup on, and then it was me, and there was three or four other of us from the church, and I couldn't have been but 19 years old. So we get into the sanctuary, we're worshiping, and we're praising God, and we're glorifying the king, and then all of a sudden I hear all these ladies over here in the area where I am, and they're standing around my friend who's got the makeup on and the lipstick, and they're, they're over there praying, they're saying, oh, God, save her soul. Oh, God, save her soul. They honestly believed that because a woman had makeup on, she wasn't Christian. Now, if you dig deep enough and you think about it, you'll find that probably in some of the fellowships you were raised, they probably had some teachings that were somewhat odd, too, when you think about them in light of today. Here's what the author, Mr. Paul, says in verse number 9. He said, the heart should be established with grace, unmerited favor, undeserved love, compassion, Our hearts should be established with the fact that I didn't deserve this salvation that has come to me, and I'm quite happy that I have it. So rather than me sitting in judgment of everybody and just telling everybody that this is wicked, this is wrong, I'm going to enjoy what I have knowing that all that other stuff didn't profit them. You know what religion does and and, and adherence to to too many clingy, uh, narrow doctrines do? They they make you self-righteous. That's how the Pharisees were, self-righteous. And the doctrines tend to exalt the people who keep them and debase the ones that don't so that the ones who don't are never holy as the ones who do. Yeah, there's a whole lot of truth to that. What, what did they used to say about uh, get saved? They'd say, we don't, how do they say We don't... Uh, we don't smoke, dip, or chew, or run with those who do. Yeah, yeah. I've heard a lot of that. Yeah, I've heard, heard a lot of that. 
And, and then I've, I've, I've thought about how, how, how many people who, who maybe, maybe struggled with that, how many of them walked away from the church, didn't want to have nothing to do with God over, 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 over an attitude like that? See? Now, I realize as, as Christians that we can be involved with anything that uh, can be difficult. I'm just simply saying that since our hearts are established with grace, we don't want to be the kind of people who say, my Lord, they ate the pork, and so now they're in trouble. So even in Nebraska today, there are small pockets of people throughout this state who honestly believe if you're Christian, you have to keep the Old Testament law. Now, quite naturally, you can't keep all the laws, but they keep the ones they think are appropriate. Yeah. So I run into them from time to time. Men who are getting circumcised. People who are teaching their children Hebrew. And they won't allow the ch- children to say Jesus because that's more of an English Greek style. They have to say Yeshua. You can't go to church unless you go to church on either Friday evening or Saturday morning because that's the Sabbath. If you go to church on Sunday, then you're out of the will of God. It, it's that kind of an attitude that not only promotes the self-righteousness that got the Pharisees and Sadducees and everybody else in trouble. It's the one thing that the Lord tried to snatch us out of when Christ died on the cross. Is that he nullified those things. He nailed them to the tree so that we could say now we're not bound by that anymore. And that's why in Corinthians, Paul said, why are you still going by this uh, touch not, taste not, handle not? All of these different things you're doing. If you follow God the way you're supposed to follow God, the spirit of, of the Lord will direct your heart to know the difference between what's right and what's wrong. And as you grow in grace and in knowledge, you'll begin to see more and more, okay, that's not of God. That is, that isn't. Since that's not of God, I don't need to be able to, I shouldn't spend any time doing that. Only God can really point these things out. This is why he says in verse 10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. So the people still holding to the principles of the law, who are still observing all of the the, the liturgies of the animal sacrifices, they don't have a right to eat of our altar. What's our altar? Calvary. Christ is the sacrifice. Verse 11. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. According to the Old Testament teaching, animals were brought to the tabernacle or the temple, and then the blood was caught in a bowl, and the blood had to be used to sprinkle the priests sometimes, sprinkle the uh, Ark of Incense and the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. But the remains were burned outside of the camp. And this is why we're told in verse 12, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Sanctification. We know a lot about justification. To be pardoned. But we need to say a few words about sanctification, what it means to be cleansed. You need to know that when you became a Christian, the Lord cleansed you of iniquity and of sin. So you don't have to feel bad about your past anymore because that's been washed away in the blood. If you don't know how the Lord sanctifies you, you'll fight guilt and condemnation every day and it'll win. I mean, those two will just beat on you. You'll always feel bad. You'll never feel good enough. And the scripture here says he sanctified us with his own blood. In the Old Testament, 
if you would have walked outside of the camp of Israel, what would you have seen? You probably would have saw more tents out there. But these tents would have belonged to the outcasts who weren't allowed to stay inside the camp. Like your lepers, people like that. Old Testament said if you had leprosy, you had to leave the village, had to go stay on the outside. Because what you have might have been contagious. They didn't want anybody to be defiled. And you had to walk around with a, <clears throat> some kind of a physical marker to let people know you were unclean. And, and according to the Old Testament, when someone came into your presence, or came close to you, you had to say, unclean, unclean. Now imagine how demoralizing that would be. That every time somebody came near you, you had to say, stay away, I'm unclean. So if you would have went outside the camp, that's exactly what you would have, have, have viewed. But yet, this is where Christ was crucified. Not within the confines of all of the self-righteous people. He, he was pushed to the outside where, I mean, the outcasts were. That's where he died. He, he hung there on the tree. People could walk by and look at him and see him utterly humiliated as he hung there between earth and heaven. Multitudes of people watched him. And you know what the scripture says about this for, for folks like us? It says we ourselves should go outside the gate to where he is. If you're going to be a Christian, bear the reproach of Christ. If we can live the Christian life in the camp, of the sinners, in the world of the sinners. And they find it comfortable for us, and we find it comfortable amongst them. I can tell you exactly what has happened. Their world has become our world. Their God has become our God. It's the story of Ruth all in reverse. You know? But if we choose to take Christ as our example and to take up the cross and follow him, that's going to lead us further and further away from a world that crucified him in the first place. That's why they crucified him outside the camp. They didn't even want him around outside the gate of the city. They wanted it to be an embarrassment. It's amazing. I think my wife was, I think she was telling me earlier today that somewhere, I forget which state now, they have some unbelieving groups that are suing uh, the churches or somebody, suing the churches because they say the churches are public facilities. So if we want to have weddings in the churches, the churches should be forced to accept our unions in the churches because people come from all over from the outside and they're public facilities. And I, I thought here, here again... If, if that church wants to follow Christ, they're going to have to stop trying to conform themselves to this world, and they're going to have to walk right on outside the gate and say, you know what, we're different, we're distinct, we're not going to believe in that, we're not going to hold to that, we're not embracing that, we don't care what the culture says, and the culture has no power in this sanctuary right here. We're proclaiming the gospel, and anybody that wants to come and receive the gospel, they're welcome, but you will not use our sanctuary for things that are so wicked. That's what's happening. And this is what this is somewhat referring to. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Are you ashamed to be a Christian? If, if someone asks you, if you're a Christian, would you be bold enough to say that you are? 
or are you a chameleon? And you change colors amongst the people that you're with. It is a reproach. I don't ever want you to think that, that, that serving God simply means that everything is going to be very easy. There, there's a reproach. There's a shame. There's some stigma attached to this lifestyle. And for us who really are passionate about being genuine and authentic, you, you can expect there's going to be pushback from a world that says to you, you should not be so strong in your personal beliefs. But your personal beliefs aren't bothering anybody. It's just that there's something about light that expels darkness. Yeah. You walk into a room with people that don't believe in God, it's a spiritual thing. It could be people you've known all your life, but suddenly there's hostility and animosity that manifests as soon as you walk into the room. And it's simply a spiritual thing. The devil is upset in them because God is big in you. And the only way the devil can manifest himself, he needs a vessel. And you have people that suddenly will start cussing, becoming vile and vulgar, telling the most filthy jokes you can possibly think of just to try to get under your skin. But remember, it's not about you. It's that devil in them trying to get under the skin of Christ. But you as a believer, you can be strong. Don't allow yourself to be pushed around by anybody. I've got a whole lot of stories on that, but I won't tell any of them tonight. I just want everybody to be encouraged and know that the lifestyle that we live as Christians is crucial in what God does in these last days. If we want Jesus to be seen in Nebraska, it's going to take people like you every day out in the community, in your home, around your kids and family, even amongst your enemies, to live a life that lets people know that they themselves are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God under salvation. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that the scripture is true. And Lord, when we consider everything taking place in these last days, we know that your son is soon to come. Meanwhile, we pray, God, you'd help us to run the race that you placed in front of us. I pray, God, as you give us opportunities to witness, that we would witness in such a way that lives would be changed. God, we don't want our counties or our state to be lost, but we want people to know who Christ is. These things, Heavenly Father, we do pray for in Jesus' matchless name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen.